Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Today in Georgia, runoff races will decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. I'll speak with former Georgia House Minority Leader and gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams. This began a while ago. Uh, for my part, 10 years ago when I became Democratic leader, we were in a bit of a nadir. We'd lost every statewide election. We'd lost the Senate to a super minority, and the House was uh, on the cusp. Plus, are polling locations in Georgia's largest county, Fulton, ready for today's voter turnout? Well, I think we were in a good position going into today because we had heavy early voting turnout with uh, 33 locations a day open. Not as heavy absentee by mail turnout, but it's pretty good. I think between the two through yesterday, we were up to 377,000 or so ballots that had been cast already. So going into today, we were ready to go this morning. All the polling locations opened on time. Speaking of Fulton County, Chairman Rob Pitts responds to the continuous accusations the elections process is a disaster in the county. And you know what's interesting there, when, we, when even the president uses the word rumor, and that's what a lot of this is. You know, people are picking, I mean, highest levels of government, private sector, you name it, they're picking on Fulton County. Those conversations and more are coming up in just a moment. But first this, officials with the Georgia officials with the Georgia Secretary of State's office continue to address allegations made by President Donald Trump. And the reason I'm having to stand here today is because there are people in positions of authority and respect who have said their votes didn't count, and it's not true. That was voting implementation manager Gabriel Sterling. Now, this was the first press conference the Secretary of State's office has held since audio surfaced over the weekend, which revealed President Trump pressuring and badgering Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to change the results of the general election to favor the president. Now, Georgia election officials have repeatedly said they are investigating only isolated incidents of voting irregularities, but nothing that would change the outcome of the race. In other news, the other big news here in Georgia, of course, is the coronavirus. Now, confirmed COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to increase in the state. And public health officials say more cases are likely to still come after the winter holidays. Now, at the time of this broadcast, pay attention, here are your numbers, 591,106 COVID-19 cases in total have now been confirmed here in Georgia. 42,595 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,471 considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these deaths back in March, 9,900 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Let's get ready for today. Yes, after months of campaigning, a continuous general election, and then counting votes and recounting votes, we're finally here 
Runoff day, election day again in Georgia. The winners of today's runoff races will determine, as we've been saying, which party holds the majority in the U.S. Senate. More than three million Georgians have already voted. Today, of course, more will head to the polls. And Georgia's largest county, once again, will be the center of attention. The polls opened at 7 a.m. today, and about an hour or so afterwards, I'm going to speak with Richard Barron, Director of Registration and Elections for the county. Director Barron, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Let's begin here. We've had so many conversations the morning of an election day about Fulton County's preparedness. How would you assess at this moment when we're speaking, just almost not quite two hours after the polls have opened, but how would you assess how prepared the county is? Well, I think we were in a good position going into today because we had heavy early voting turnout with uh, 33 locations a day open. We uh, if had we had 19 full days of early voting without the holidays, we would have beaten the November early voting total. And um, we have also had not as heavy absentee by mail turnout, but it's pretty good. I think between the two through through yesterday, we were up to 377,000 or so ballots that had been cast already. And so going into today, you know, we were positioned well and we were ready to go this morning. All the polling locations opened on time. So, and we have, I haven't had any reports of any, any issues. Are there the same number of polling locations as in November? 254 uh, now versus 255 in November. And I know in the past you've had some issues with staffing. Do you feel like you have enough staff at those 250-plus locations? Yes. Yeah, we definitely had enough staff. I think over the weekend we started having people call in uh, that had tested positive for COVID. But other than that, we were able to quickly replace them. Let's talk about also some other issues in the past, not just with you know staffing, but I believe with the pole pads not working, you had some non-working AC power cords. From a technical standpoint, I guess, or infrastructure standpoint, all that, any concerns going into today? No, I mean, when you have that much, you know, this, this voting system does have many more components than the one we used in prior years. But um, I think as we've used it over the year, uh, we we've um, been able to iron out a lot of those things. You still you still just have you know components. Where you've got a scanner, you've got printers, you've got the BMDs, you've got the pull pads. There's many more pieces of technology in pl- at play. So we tried to have a, a technician at every single polling site, as we've been doing uh, since the August election. And I, I think, you know, all the poll workers are, are experienced with the new system now, too, because not only do we have the June election, but we've had elections in August, September, November, December, and now this January one. So they, it's been back to back for for everyone. I do want to shift for a moment because I'm sure you're aware of a phone call between President Donald Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State's office. Did you listen to the entire conversation? No. No, I've, I mean, I've heard uh, about a five-minute clip of it. I, I haven't had time to listen to the whole thing, but um, I do intend to. Are you aware of the allegations that the president made regarding Fulton County? Yeah, well, at least a, at least a couple of them, yes. And, you know, they there isn't any truth to them. In fact, the figures that were thrown out were at least 
I think he said there was someone like 250 or 300,000 ballots with with forged signatures, but we didn't even, we only received 148,000 absentee by mail ballots total. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm not even sure where these figures are coming from, and we haven't shredded ballots. You know, those are the two main ones, I think, that that I heard on the on the clip of the of the entire conversation. Fulton County has been the direct target of President Trump. It's been a direct target of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. You have experienced elected officials calling for you to resign. What is your take in all of this? And I know you've told me before, you don't want this to be about politics. You want it to be about doing the best job that your team can do for Fulton County. But at some point, Director mm-hmm. Barron, don't you get tired of hearing your name? Well, I mean, I think it just comes with this job, although this year seems to have um, taken a turn. In, a, in a, I mean, there's a lot more vitriol, and and it seems as though, you know, I, we, we have a nonpartisan office, and it isn't, there are no political appointments um, in my office. So we try to operate in that manner, and... So when you have political attacks, uh, it's I think it's a little disconcerting because we're trying to run right in the middle of the road. And however, um, I think that also just kind of comes with the territory of this job. As we wrap up, let me ask you this. Do you believe results will be available before midnight tonight from Fulton County? Yeah, well, we'll we'll release um, what we've what we've scanned um, through about one o'clock today um, from absentee by mail, um, close to seven. And then at seven, we can start closing out early voting. So we will release the early voting results um, over time, probably, you know, probably have two or three releases of early voting because it it takes, when you have that many polling places, it does take some time to close all of the early voting out. We can't do anything about that until 7. The election day sites will come in throughout the evening. The bulk of those should be in by by midnight. And then we will keep scanning absentee by mail ballots, doing the signature verification. Everything that comes in today through the mail and the drop boxes will process today. And, I mean, our goal is to get completed you know, sometime in the middle of the night with absentee by mail, but it, it's possible that that'll carry over into tomorrow. Sure. Director of Registration and Elections for Fulton County, Richard Barron, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And as mentioned earlier and all over the news, in a phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, President Trump is heard pressuring Raffensperger to change the state's general election in Trump's favor. Also during the conversation, the president calls out one specific Georgia county. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, That Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. This is Ryan Germany. No, Dominion has not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? 
No. On the day of Georgia's runoff elections for both Senate seats, county officials have an extra added storyline here. Not only are they trying to make sure that everything runs as smoothly as possible, but also responding to these accusations. Joining me now is Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts. Chairman Pitts, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you. Let's begin here on this day, obviously a very critical day here for our nation's government. How are you feeling about the county's preparedness? Well, I am just excited about uh, where we are. Uh, We have put a lot of work into making sure that elections here in Fulton County are open, fair, and transparent. As you know, uh, since the first part of the year, I've been personally involved uh, in our election process because of the challenges that we face, uh, criticism that we faced, all the unfounded criticism going back to the first part of the year. But because of that criticism, I accepted it as a challenge to do better. And we did do better to the extent that our uh, November election I gave our performance an A-plus, mm-hmm. and I'm expecting to, to give another A-plus as a result of the work that we have put in for the election today. We have, uh, we'll have some 254 precincts that are operating, approximately 3,300 uh, poll workers. We'll have a technician at each location. We will have our two mobile units that we can deploy any place uh, in the county if an emergency were to occur, uh, for example, a power outage at a mm-hmm. given precinct. So in my opinion, we are totally, totally prepared. And we also have a security uh, person, uh, foreign security person at each of the precincts. So bottom line is Fulton County is ready to go. And Chairman Pitts, you mentioned security. Obviously, you're hoping that there won't be a need to have them break up any disruption. But is that a concern for you? It's not really a concern, but uh, out of an abundance of caution, and we've been advised, uh, you know, we have our uh, Fulton County Police Department uh, working with uh, others, uh, Homeland Security, FBI, and others. So we're monitoring everything and in order to be prepared. Uh, just in case, we want to have uh, take every uh, precaution that we can, again, out of an abundance of caution, is to make sure that we have covered all of our bases, and I think that we have. From security to a technician at every polling location to all the other extra added measures here, any idea how much money you all have had to spend just for this day? Well, the... Uh, this day is still, I mean, that's, a, that's an ongoing total, a running total. But typically, um, we spent from, for the election, this, this election cycle, meaning all of 2020 and covering this uh, election today, we will have gone from, which would have been in a presidential election year, around $17 million that we will be spending approximately $40 million. And that's a huge jump. And that is primarily due to the coronavirus. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because of the virus, we had to add more polling uh, places. We had to have more poll workers. We had to pay the poll workers more. In addition to that, there were um, three extra elections that we didn't even plan for. You recall that when Congressman Lewis died, that... Mm -hmm. uh, precipitated uh, an election and a runoff for his race. 
and then of course the uh, the runoff now that we're here today. So there were three that we did not uh, had not even planned for. Mm-hmm. Typically, in an even year, which would be your presidential election, about 17 million. This year, we're going to be approaching uh, 40 million. An odd year races, city races, uh, typically three or four million dollars because the cities pay those their elections. And we made up that shortfall going from the 17 million to the about 40 million. We got a 10.8 million dollar grant. We received about five million dollars of CARES Act money, and the balance came about seven million came in. Uh, we had to dip into the general fund mm-hmm. to make up that shortfall. Again, I think there, there, I mentioned a couple of the reasons for all of this: the COVID. Huge, more sites, polling sites, uh, pay for poll workers, technicians. And then the number of absentee ballots, if you recall, um, when the Secretary of State decided to send an absentee ballot application to every registered voter in the state, uh, that uh, precipitated a huge number of absentee ballots coming in, which we had to count. Mm -hmm. There there was also uh, uh, an audit and the recount that we had to pay for at the county. So we bought additional equipment with some of that money, although the, the original, uh, what we call the BMDs, ballot marking devices, the machines where you go and vote, we had to buy uh, about 150 more. We had to pay for storage. We had to pay for movers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to pay for moving vans. And I mentioned those three additional elections in September, uh, December, and January. So this has been a very, very busy year for Fulton County. But that's one of the things that we are responsible for. Mm -hmm. Fulton County is responsible for elections. And I think that we've done an outstanding job. And I think that we're going to be in for another uh, stellar day today. Now, something that you obviously probably did not plan for, which would be Part of a conversation, a phone conversation with President Donald Trump to Georgia Secretary of State's office, Brad Raffensperger. First of all, Chairman Pitts, have you listened to the entire conversation? I have not. I've heard uh, snippets of it, but I have not listened to it. And, you know, what's interesting there, uh, when, we, when even the president uses the word rumor, and that's what a lot of this is. You know, people are picking, I mean, highest levels of government, private sector, you name it. They're picking on Fulton County. I mean, we're there. Of the 158 counties, we're the largest in the state of Georgia, and and the best, by the way, and one of the best in the country. Therefore, uh, you know, we're a target, which which I understand. But to unfairly, though, uh, which sort of uh, irks me sometimes, is to unfair when people when we are unfairly criticized, uh, that becomes a problem. And I've said publicly, and I'll say again, and one more time, I guess I'll have to say it, continue saying it. If someone has some evidence, some proof of some wrongdoing, orchestrated wrongdoing with respect to elections and how we're conducting elections in Fulton County, I would like to see that evidence. And I will personally look at that evidence and get it to people who can look at it. If it's technical, we'll get the right technical people involved in it to make a determination as to whether it's real or not real. But as I speak to you today, no one, not one person has come forward. It's all been rumor. Now, what's going on between the president of the United States of America 
and the Secretary of State of Georgia, I have no idea what that's all about. But it does, though, uh, when Fulton County is brought into their conversations, then that's a little problem for me because there's nothing that I'm aware of that we have done that's not been proper, not been fair, not been open, and not been transparent, and not been above board. Chairman Pitts, let me ask you this, because although Secretary of State Raffensperger has in his conversation with the president, and he's publicly said, you know, your claims are not true. But the same, I guess, the demeanor in which he comes after, and I'm talking about Secretary Raffensperger here, comes after Fulton County, is different from when he does oppose the president. Does that strike you odd? Do you wish he would have that same moxie and fervor in addressing the president that he has when he talks about how screwed up a county Fulton County is when it comes to elections? And that, that is strange. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know whether the pressure has gotten to him. Obviously, he's under a lot of pressure. So that's the only way I can explain it. But because if you go back to the first part of the year, he was one of the harshest critics against uh, Fulton County. And I had to call him and his people out. So listen, why continue to pick on Fulton County and make unfounded allegations against Fulton County? And when we had done nothing wrong and are doing nothing wrong, in fact, we're following, we're following every, the letter of the law. Now, is it possible that there's an outlier case where someone voted who should not have voted? Absolutely, that can happen. No election is perfect. Mm-hmm. Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts, as always, we appreciate you taking the time on this day as Georgians head to the polls for those two U.S. Senate seats. Thank you so much for taking the time, as always. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A record turnout in early voting and by absentee ballot netted more than 3 million voters ahead of today's Senate runoff elections. But there's another key voter demographic that could play a role in the outcome, the traditional non-voter. Now, later in the program, we'll dissect this group with a report from the Knight Foundation. But first, for some political analysts, Georgia has indeed turned blue after the longstanding predictable Republican wins in the presidential elections. But all that came to a halt this past November as Georgia went for president-elect Joe Biden. And now the balance of power in the U.S. Senate lies with Georgia. My next guest surely has some insight into all of this. She's the former Georgia House Minority Leader. She's an author, former Georgia gubernatorial candidate and founder of Fair Fight, a national voting rights organization based here in her home state of Georgia. Stacey Abrams joins Closer Look. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Glad to be here. Let's begin with this and how you see Georgia getting to this point. A runoff election for both U.S. Senate seats. 
that will determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. How did Georgia get here? This began a while ago. Uh, for my part, 10 years ago when I became Democratic leader, we were in a bit of a nadir. We'd lost every statewide election. We'd lost the Senate to a super minority, and the House was uh, on the cusp. My mission and my responsibility as leader was to think about how do we grow the party? How do we reestablish our bona fides as a competitive party? And you know, I've been very privileged to bring resources to the state and to do a lot of infrastructure building, but I joined my efforts with you know, dozens of other organizations in Georgia across the state. But you know, we know this election was the culmination of that work. And in particular, when you look at 2018 versus 2020, Fair Fight and other groups were instrumental in mitigating the voter suppression that blocked so many voters in Georgia from being able to participate in our elections due to exact match, poll closures, uh, erratic and uneven application of absentee ballot rules. Many of those issues were uh, mitigated. They weren't solved uh, because we know the Republican legislature is intending to reverse course on a number of the gains that we've made. But this was an election where we had much better access. After June, we had much better investment. Uh, Fair Fight helped to bring almost $30 million in investment to expand the number of drop boxes, to provide support and resources to you know, overwhelmed county elections offices. And you know, I think together we were able to generate the space, but ultimately it was voters who decided that Joe Biden would best represent their needs, would best serve as the next president of the United States. And Georgia was glad to join and you know, deliver our 16 electoral college votes. Back in August of 2019, I think you were, you were out in Las Vegas when you launched specific initiative, which was Fair Fight 2020. I'm going to quote you here because you stated, quote, we're going to have a fair fight in 2020 because my mission is to make sure that no one has to go through in 2020 what we went through in 2018. Because despite how hard they work, I am still here and we are going to make sure every vote is here. Close quote. Through your lens, then what we see today is a result of this pledge and the work that you and these other organizations have done. That's what you're saying. I, I, I would absolutely say that. We know that not just here in Georgia, but in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, fair fight teams got to work in 2019, building infrastructure, building capacity, but also building relationships with local elections officials making sure that sometimes what looks like malfeasance and bad action was simply underinvestment and poor training. We worked in each state looking at their specific needs, using the primaries as a template for what needed to be done in the general. And I think Georgia is no better, it, there's no more perfect example than Georgia. If we think about the debacle that was June's primary and what we were able to accomplish in the early voting and the run-up to the election, we had some, you know, some snafus and we mm -hmm. still had challenges with bandwidth, but ultimately we were able to get as many people as possible through the process. And we're watching that happen again in this runoff where more than 3 million voters have been able to cast their ballots safely, almost a million from their homes and being able to go to an early voting site, socially distanced, but able to participate in, you know, deciding the future of the state and the future of the country. Let's talk about the American voter for a moment, because despite record number turnout this past general election, it should be noted that, that was only one third of the nation's eligible voters, which equates to about 80 million folks who didn't vote. What do you make of that when you hear that number? I 
believe that politics can be a very confusing space to enter. And for some, especially those who've been mired in generational poverty, who've faced a constant lack of engagement from their leadership or who are happy with the way things are. There are a lot of reasons to decide not to vote. My mission is to make certain that those who wish to participate in the franchise or who've been told they're not wanted in the franchise, that they are the ones that we are activating. If you choose not to move, that's your prerogative, but it should never be that you were prevented from participating or discouraged from participating. So for those who feel like it was a barrier, but they wanted to vote, what exactly did your teams do in between that pledge from 2018 or 2019 to now? So let's start with just Georgia as the baseline. Mm -hmm. Number one, when the election ended, we kept talking to voters. We kept talking to those voters, especially those who attempted to vote and were blocked from doing so, who had their absentee ballots rejected, were given provisional ballots unfairly and didn't understand how to cure them. We never stopped talking to those voters because we have to remember that civic participation isn't an event, it is a process. And so we have been in constant conversation since November of 2018 with millions of voters. You layer on top of that the lawsuits that we were able to file, many of which were successful. We were able to push through and support legislation that changed dramatically the exact match system, that egregious misapplication of how we registered to vote in the state of Georgia. We were able to push counties because of COVID to expand use of drop boxes. Again, the state elections board said we could do it, but we made certain people had the resources to invest. The consent decree or settlement order, however you wanna describe it, that was pushed forward that required that every county had to have the same rules for how you cure absentee ballots. That was a huge deal because in Georgia in 2018, if you lived in one county, they would call you and say, and we can't, we, we think there's a problem with your signature. Can you bring in your ID? If you lived in another county, you found out weeks after the election, they threw out your ballot. We made certain that there was uniformity. But most of all, we have been telling people how to get help because so often voter suppression feels like an isolated, self-induced event. People believe it's their fault. We have been working very hard to say, if you see something, say something. And we built a statewide permanent voter protection infrastructure so that whether it happened in the presidential election or in municipal elections in 2019, people had someone to call and there was there was support and resources to get things done. But back to Georgia runoff elections on this day, but not without additional storylines. Uh, first, a dozen plus Republican senators say they intend to challenge President-elect Biden's win when Congress meets tomorrow formally to count the votes of the Electoral College. You have talked about this nation's democracy and what erodes that. Is this an example with these Republican senators saying they intend to challenge this win? The law permits them to make this challenge. What I object to is the absolute lack of evidence, the complete complicity in pushing conspiracy theories that have been routinely and soundly debunked. There is a massive difference between the work I do to expand access to a franchise and what we see happening in these corners where they are trying to say that voters don't matter, that their voices should be shunned. Our mission should be to always expand the franchise, never 
to allow politicians to cherry pick the voters they want to hear from. You tweeted not long after news broke of President Trump's phone conversation with the Georgia Secretary of State's office. Quote, Georgians, I know it's tempting, but let's not allow ourselves to be distracted today or tomorrow or Tuesday. Let's use our time and energy to find those friends and family who haven't cast their ballots and urge them to do so on Tuesday. Close quote. No comment regarding this latest incident with President Trump? No focus from we've you had, at all? We've had four years of a failed president who is flailing on his way out. My mission, my focus, and our objective must be to address the COVID crisis that is in Georgia that's a national crisis. Our mission is to make certain that every voter who wants to be heard today from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. gets out and votes. And if they need help, go to peachvote.com or call 866-OUR-VOTE. Did you listen to the phone conversation? I did. So let me ask you as a lawyer, and through your lens, if there's an attempt to influence or change the outcome of a certified election, and in this case, from the President of the United States, is this a criminal act? I will let the duly elected uh, you know, law enforcement officers and legal officers make that determination. My focus is on making sure that we have a president-elect who's a partnership in the U.S. Senate that allows good to get done for the next four years. And how hopeful are you of tonight's election results for the Democrats? I'm determined to make certain we get it there. We have the votes. We have the capacity. We just have to get it done. Former Georgia House Minority Leader, author, former Georgia gubernatorial candidate and founder of Fair Fight, Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Happy New Year. Thank you, Rose. Happy New Year to you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In a phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, the president is pressuring Raffensperger to change the state's general election outcome in Trump's favor. Here's a little bit more of that conversation. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, That Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. Ryan Germany. No, Dominion has not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. Whether it's pressuring, badgering, or an attempt to influence the outcome of an election, depending on whom you ask, people have a difference of an opinion. So joining me now is Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia, to offer her opinion. Uh, Director Young, thanks so much for taking time. Thank you very much for covering this very serious matter, Rose. Have you listened to the entire conversation? Uh, I have read most of the conversation. Uh, There was a transcript in the Washington Post Mm -hmm. that um, details the conversation. Your overall reaction? Well, you know, I think... 
of course, we're, we have an election today. Everyone who hasn't voted uh, needs to get out there and vote. Uh, and so one of the things elections are about in this season is fairness in the criminal justice system and a perception that Black people are overly prosecuted and rich, wealthy white people are not held accountable for the damage that they do. Um, this is unbelievably damaging. Um, and there are several statutes uh, that can apply. The current president is on tape threatening our secretary of state, harassing him to change the votes in an election. He has a specific number of votes that he is, you know, pestering the secretary of state to find for him. So, uh, statutes that could apply, conspiracy to commit election fraud, solicitation, uh, interfering with the duties of an election, elected official. Um, and there's got to be, an, there has to be an investigation and a report to the public. What is the standard? Uh, Let me ask you this. Who should officially request or initiate that call for this to be investigated? What well, entity does this fall under initially? Well, I would say that there are a number of entities that um, that could investigate. Um, this has been national behavior. We know this was the similar things were done in Pennsylvania. You know, elected officials were summoned to the White House. Um, so it certainly could be a federal prosecution, uh, but it could also be a state prosecution. And frankly, uh, the, the thing that comes to mind, Rose, again, about is there equity in our criminal justice system? Mm -hmm. We sent teachers in Fulton County to jail for changing the score on a test. And you're going to tell me that the president of the United States can demand that the secretary of state find votes that were not cast for him, uh, cheat in this election, and that there is no accountability in Fulton County. Um, so I think that there is a there there is a, a responsibility because one of the things about punishment and investigations is also to deter future conduct. So is Fulton County saying that this is acceptable? Is the state of Georgia saying that this is acceptable behavior? Um, I mean, there's just there's got to be a, an investigation and a report to the public about what the standard is going to be in the state of Georgia in Fulton County about this kind of behavior. And the state, you know, because it is a, involves a state officer, mm -hmm. Fulton County has jurisdiction. So it should start at the county level. Do you think perhaps with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis at some point? Does it begin there? Since we're talking about the Secretary of State's office, should Attorney General Chris Carr? I, I you know, I think all of them have an obligation to the public uh, to make clear um, their assessment and evaluation of this conduct. Um, this is very damaging conduct. We know that one of the concerns we have about getting people out to vote is that people think their votes don't matter. So if you just, you have this open and public attempt by a powerful person uh, to change the election, a, you know, a candidate for office, uh, to change the election in their favor, uh, you know, just create votes out of whole cloth. This mm -hmm. damages the confidence and trust that people have in our system. And frankly, it's an insult to the thousands of people across the state today 
who are doing their duty, who are diligently working, you know, to conduct a fair election, an accurate election, to give people the opportunity to participate in our democracy. Uh, and so it's an insult to these thousands of ordinary citizens across the state of Georgia, you know, who do their duty uh, to protect democracy. Uh, and we can't allow uh, a powerful person uh, to behave in this manner um, and still protect the integrity of our process. What concerns do you have moving forward that if there is not an investigation, if there is no accountability uh, held for the president or any other actors involved here in attempting to influence the outcome of an election, then moving forward, what concerns do you have that this could become a trend, a, a behavior that an elected official who doesn't like the outcome of a race then just makes these claims and then their their supporters and their base get riled up about it. Well, that's exactly right. And we see that people are riled up even today. You know, we see that um, people are uh, questioning the results, that people are uh, making threats against polling places. Uh, we, we have canvassers, you know, that uh, we're got, you know, the people are calling the police and they're being harassed. And so, you know, it, it, the precedent that this um, sets is very dangerous. Since John Adams, no presidential candidate has behaved in this manner. Hmm. Um, and so this is, you know, the, we've got to have accountability. We have, we've got to stand up for the standards of behavior in our democracy and the protection of the in integrity of our elections. We are a lot of we are we hear a lot of discussion about election integrity. Um, and so this is a time for people who have this rhetoric to stand up and protect the election, the, the integrity uh, of our democratic system. No one is above the law and no one is entitled. No one. I mean, this this call is so improper. Uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger, ref you know, it took 18 calls before he would even accept the call, mm -hmm. according to reports. So we know this is improper. This is highly improper, the call itself. And then when you see the content of it, uh, it's, it's, beyond, it's beyond disturbing. And the fact that this pr current president and soon to be former president um, has behaved this way for four years, he was you know, is no excuse and no reason to overlook it and, and somehow uh, act as if it's not extremely serious. Once President Trump is no longer president, if there hasn't been any action regarding this phone call, do you think then it is still critical that he be, try, that at some point, someone try to hold him accountable for if this indeed is around some criminal or illegal activity? Yeah. You know, there are, you know, there are discussions uh, about whether there should be an another impeachment process. Um, I don't, um, you know, my focus right now is on the integrity of the electoral process in the mm -hmm. state of Georgia. People, we have worked very hard, you know, 5 million people voted in the November election. Uh, and we owe it to every single one of those voters to make sure that um, we defend we defend this process, um, and that um, you know. And so, 
you know, that's really my focus is to make sure that we continue to uh, make sure that people in the state of Georgia, you know, can have trust in this process, that we work uh, to support um, the rule of law in this process, that every that it's easy for people to vote and every person's vote the same count. Every person's vote uh, counts equally. Um, and that's our focus. Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia. Director Young, as always, thank you so much for taking the time and Happy New Year. Great. Thank you. Happy New Year. This is Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In case you don't know, Georgia's holding runoff elections for both of its Senate seats today. And regardless of the outcome, guess what? Those campaign ads, they will stop. That's a good thing. A record turnout in early voting and by absentee ballot netted more than 3 million voters ahead of today. But there's another voter demographic that could be key in the outcome. A new poll from the Knight Foundation finds this group, quote, traditional non-voters may have a role in the deciding outcome. Joining me now to talk more about this and this new report is Yvette Alexander. She's a director for learning and impact at the Knight Foundation. Yvette, thank you for joining us again and Happy New Year. To you as well. Thank you for having me. Let's begin here. Define for our listeners just what is the typical non-voter? Sure. So non-voters that we looked at in our study, um, 12,000 of them, these were folks who are eligible to vote, um, but they have not voted um, in any of the last six national elections or perhaps just one. So one or fewer in the last six national elections is what we termed a non-voter. Some people would call them infrequent voters because every now and then they do come, some of them do come to the polls, but only for, um, you know, a highly motivated uh, reason or a large turnout election like the one we just had in November. Now, despite record turnout for the general election back in November, it's estimated that was only one third of all eligible voters in the nation. And that equates to about 80 million who did not vote. I guess that's not lost on you all because you all examined this. But 80 million. That's remarkable. It's a lot of people who set out the election, and um, and we had record turnout, as you know. So that's one of the reasons why Knight Foundation um, saw this group as one that's important to understand. What are their challenges? Um, you know, when it comes to voting, how do they view voting in the elections process? Um, how do they view politics in general? And um, something that you know we thought was important was understanding this group better because polling companies, as you know, um, screen usually screen out folks who don't vote regularly. So that it's really a, a population, a group of the electorate that we really don't understand a lot about. And that was one of the reasons uh, we believe that some of the polling was off predicting the, um, you know, the, you know, they didn't predict such a close election um, this past November. Uh, one of the reasons was that a lot of these non-voters or infrequent voters came to the polls in 2020. And those were groups that traditional polling companies don't understand very well. And one of the findings in our research was that they were actually pretty closely split between uh, those supporting the Republican and the Democratic candidate. And for these typical non-voters, is this due to a personal decision or could it be a result of difficulties accessing their right to vote or a combination of all of that and then some? 
Right. Yeah, it's a good point. It's really all of the above. There's a lot of um, factors that go into why someone doesn't vote on a regular basis, a lot of social factors, a lot of um, you know, access factors, but also, um, you know, historical factors as well. Um, people tend to vote frequently, tend to come from families who vote frequently, tend to be more college educated, tend to be more higher income. Um, and so you do get a lot of kind of um, generational learning or lack of learning in that way. And so that's one of, that's something that we wanted to delve into as well. A lot of non-voters said that they didn't trust politics. They didn't trust the election system. And this is even before the coronavirus hit. So I imagine that a lot of them are have question marks, you know, heading into the general election and into the runoff today. And these non-voters, are they spread out throughout the nation? Or do you all know if we find a majority in certain parts of the country? Yeah, that's a good question. We wanted to get kind of a national sample. So we we have this um, national sample of non-voters. And we also looked at certain battleground states because we know that, um, you know, where if the non-voters were to come out to the elections, um, come out to the polls, that it would matter where they came out. And in Georgia, um, some interesting things stood out to us. Um, for one thing, Georgia stood out against other battleground states as um, having the fewest non-voters saying they would vote for President Trump to reelect President Trump if they had to vote. Uh, only 29% said that and more were in favor of voting uh, for the for the Democratic nominee and now obviously Biden-Harris, um, which was 34%. That was the largest um, left-leaning split uh, amongst non-voters in the battleground states that we looked at. So kind of what we took away from that was that, you know, the Democratic um, candidates in Georgia had more to gain uh, than in, even in other places of turning out um, infrequent voters or non-voters. Now, the last time we spoke, one group you cited as having very low turnout numbers was between the ages of 18 to 25-year-olds. And for these runoffs, we know there's been heavy campaigning towards this group. Let's talk about your latest poll. You spoke to 800 Georgians, correct? Do you know if that included some first-time voters, particularly those that just turned 18? The poll of 800 in Georgia um, included those that had a chronic habit of not voting. So we're talking about people who have had chances to vote and haven't been engaging. Mm. Does it surprise you that both parties, particularly Democrats, are targeting the 18 to 25 year olds? I'm just curious as to your assessment of that. No, it's definitely not surprising because um, we know that amongst the 18 to 25 year olds that we surveyed, at least nationally, you could see that um, a much larger majority of them were planning on voting um, Democrat or had favorable opinions of of the Democratic nominees as opposed to Trump. So definitely there would be more to gain um, amongst that age group for the Democratic parties and candidates. And Yvette, what about the breakdown in terms of, of race or ethnicity? Were you all able to extract that from your survey? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that's been known for a while, that um, when you look at folks who don't um, come to the polls very often, they do tend to be, like I said, um, less college educated than those voters who come to the poll consistently. And they do tend to be um, a bit younger, as you mentioned, and they do tend to be more minority, although they're still majority white nationally. Um, in Georgia, um, had the highest proportion of minorities represented amongst the non-voters. So a lot more African-American percentage within the non-voters in Georgia. So if it's hard to gauge voter mindset, if you will, but what is your takeaway from what you all were able to get from these non-voters in terms of their mindset and why they continue to not vote or they will not vote, particularly in today's runoff? I mean, what, can you gather anything from the voter mindset of this particular demographic that we're talking about? 
Sure. Some of the um, the things that stood out to us from the study at large was that a lot of non-voters don't engage because they say they don't like the candidates. But oddly enough, you know, a lot of voters also don't like the candidates, but there's still something that drives them to the polls. And so um, some of the things that set non-voters apart from uh, frequent voters was that they um, had a lower trust in the election system, believing somehow there, that there was corruption or that other forces may maybe actually, um, you know, uh, elect a president or get put a president in power other than the voice of the people. And so I think we have a long ways to go in terms of some messaging and civic education around, you know, how our election system actually works, that we've, we just had, you know, a fantastic election, um, you know, where, you know, we have um, we have a lot of policies in place and uh, methods in place to be able to trust in the results of the election. And um, so I think more transparency on how the how the voting tallying process actually works would be uh, fantastic. Some people don't understand uh, the Electoral College. And, you know, we've had a very high profile election in recent memory where, um, you know, a candidate won the popular vote and not the electoral college vote. That's confusing for a lot of people, um, understandably. And so, you know, I think, you know, maybe we've had some lessons back in um, middle school or high school on how these things work, but it would be great to, um, you know, have uh, more adult education around some of these issues or as, you know, other voices, perhaps, as other voices perhaps shed doubt or uh, criticize our elections process, you know, being able to understand truly the mechanics of it um, could be helpful for some folks. Other folks don't vote because um, they say the process of voting is hard and actually more non-voters in Georgia said it. Um, they found the, the process of voting uh, in Georgia difficult. Um, and so that's something that definitely uh, we need to continue to work on, particularly young people also say that uh, voting is a hard process for them. They're used to doing things online and, and digitally, and that's not something currently offered in the United States. As you wrap up in your survey, you found that 32 percent of the non-voters polled were Democrats, while 26 percent were Republicans. And considering a state like Georgia that has shifted in terms of its voter demographic, the state has changed in terms of race and ethnicity, I think it still remains to be seen whether or not Georgia has truly turned from red to blue. Some like to use purple or purple or whatever you want to call it. Do you need more election cycles to get a full or concrete assessment to say that the state has truly flipped or this past general election through your lens? Is that enough? If you're going to focus on data, not just personal feelings, because you're an analyst, so I'm asking you as an analyst, is there enough right now with the assessment just from the general election or do we need more election cycles to truly make an assessment on whether or not Georgia has flipped? Well, that's a good question, and I'd be curious to see what other experts would say. I think that something to keep in mind is that this this election is likely, the turnout we saw in this past election is likely not to repeat itself in the near future. So we've had historically, you know, much lower turnout. And so a lot of infrequent voters came to the polls this past November and might come to the polls today. But in the future, it remains to be seen uh, whether or not they'll come back. And so I think there's a lot of uh, work to be done and moment- momentum to be ridden um, you know, from this, this turnout, because if you don't have the same levels of turnout in the future, um, I think it's hard to say whether or not Georgia will run red or blue. The key word being might. In January, I know we spoke in March, but in January, if someone had told you, you know what, Georgia's going to be a battleground state, and guess what? It could come down to Georgia deciding the Senate. Could you believe that? 
I think it would have been surprising. However, we did include Georgia as a battleground state as we've been collecting this data from last year. Mm -hmm. So we did, um, you know, foresee that it, it could be an interesting uh, and more, more of a close, I think, run than um, maybe other folks believed. I think it's important to know that Georgia non-voters could be gettable and they do want their voices to be heard. So um, even folks who aren't coming to the polls regularly, 65% of those in Georgia said that they do want a, a say in major decisions that impact their lives. Um, and only 22% said nothing could motivate them to vote. Others said that they were holding out for a candidate that they believe in, or they're looking for more or better information on candidates and issues uh, as they come to the ballot, particularly down ballot. Um, and over a third, 36% have never been asked to vote by friends, family, parties. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's um, you know, a lot of ground that could still be covered in terms of um, bringing these people to the polls today. Yvette Alexander is Director for Learning and Impact at the Knight Foundation. We're talking about a new poll on how traditional non-voters could impact today's runoff elections. Yvette, as always, good work that you all do. Thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All eyes on Georgia once again. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Kanabi. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.